Get ready for all the craziness of small business. It's exactly that craziness that makes it exciting and totally unbelievable. Small Business Radio is now on the air with your host, Barry Moltz. Thanks for joining this week's radio show. Remember, this is the final word in small business. Today, I've been doing since the beginning of this pandemic. I'm recording this from my home to your small business. For those keeping track, this is now amazingly show 675. This episode is brought to you by Nice Job, the amazing tool that can make it easy to build more reviews to grow your small business. To get started, go to www.nicejob.com and use the code Barry to get $50 off. Well, a long time ago, I read an incredible book by Alex Kotlowitz called There Are No Children Here. It was about growing up in the projects in Chicago. After reading this book, I always felt that if I had grown up in those projects, my business probably would have been dealing drugs because I just love business. Well, something similar happened to my first guest. Aaron Smith is a native of the South Side of Chicago. He earned a bachelor's degree in business management from Columbia College. And it wasn't long after that he began his journey within the criminal justice system. In 2009, he was sentenced to 12 years in prison for distribution of heroin and fentanyl, resulting in death. Aaron knew that he had the soul of an entrepreneur because his drug operation sold over $15,000 a day. But as he likes to say, I was selling the wrong product, so I had to switch hustles. He was released from federal prison after nine years and five months in February 2019. He hopes to make an impact now through his media company, Escaping the Odds. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Barry, for having me on. Aaron, tell us a little about your journey and how you got into your uh, the business of selling drugs and and, and doing over $15,000 a day. Yeah, I had... Um... Grew up on the south side of Chicago. Um, drugs and gang culture was just a norm, unfortunately, in my in my neighborhood. Although in my household we value education, so I always knew that I was going to um, go to college, get into business of some sort. Uh, I didn't realize that I'll end up uh, selling drugs, but nevertheless, I did. Uh, got introduced at an early at early age of about fifteen, selling marijuana, and um, I felt that was a a drug that was harmless, and all of my peers smoked it, and so I. And now like it's now it's hey, legal. No, 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 it's legal. Exactly <laughs> right. So I, in my in my mind, I didn't, I didn't use these terms, but as I look, started selling marijuana, really kind of petty, petty dealing. Um, then about the age of eighteen, uh, was introduced to uh, heroin, and that was a whole another different drug, a whole another different customer, uh, so to speak, and really took off, quote unquote. Um, Unfortunately, I had success, quote unquote, and started out small, you know, maybe it was a few thousand dollars a day, then eventually um, led up to about $15,000 a day on a quote unquote good day. Um, And this is something that we did when I say we, myself and uh, my counterparts for about a few years. Um, So it eventually led me to federal prison uh, for distribution of heroin. But nevertheless, I learned so much through that process. And so tell us, you know, and I always felt, again, when after I read Alex's book, I always felt mm-hmm. that it, it's, it's easy to get into this because it's right there. You're mm-hmm. filling a need. It's an easy way to make money. Is that how it starts? Yeah, it does. It, it starts exactly that way. Um, and initially, you, you, well, at least for myself, um, you're nervous. You're thinking about the consequences. But after a while, as you see, a lot of your peers not going to prison, at least where I was operating out of, because it was the norm, right? The police just didn't catch people or the operation was ran so quote unquote smoothly that you didn't see people getting getting incarcerated. So for me it's like it made it that much more easy to to get involved because I didn't I didn't see eventually I, I mean I didn't see anything happening far as any kind of consequences later on down the line. So I'll hop in here first. And what was the opportunity when you graduated from college? What was the opportunity to go into a different kind of business? What were well, you going to pursue? Uh, well, always, I, I kind of tricked myself. I said, okay, I'm just going to sell drugs um, for a certain amount of time so I get a certain amount of money, and I'm going to start my own business. Um, I did do that. However, growing a business is hard, especially a legitimate one. But selling drugs is you know, it's not as challenging, right? Um, it sells itself for the most part. And so I, um, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to start a, a start a business and I did it, but I eventually went back to what I knew, what was easy, was with the less of resistance. And so I stayed in the game. 
You know, it's interesting to me. I don't know if you've ever watched the TV show The Wire. Yeah, uh, right. And, and it shows how the kind of business that that guy really runs. I mean, it really is yeah. just like a, you know, just like a business. What yes. elements from that business are, do you think you learned that are really, uh, that are really can transfer to a legitimate business? Team builder for sure. Um, we had a whole, like everybody from security that watched over the building. Um, a person that actually sold the drugs, a person that packaged the drugs, a person, a person that um, transported the drugs. It was all of these different um, pieces of the chessboard, so to speak. And so it's the same thing in, in, in corporate America. And so I tell people often that I learned more in the streets than I did in four and a half years of college. And then, so so what? So tell us some of the things that you learned, because I think there are a lot of, despite the business being illegal, I think there are a lot yeah. of similarities to a legal mm-hmm. enterprise, as you're just talking about the team building, and everyone had a role and everyone had a function. It, it, exactly, um, and just learning how to deal with multiple uh, personalities, and you got to remember these personalities are probably the same kind of personality the person would deal in corporate America. So it's a little bit more challenging uh, to kind of, to kind of work with and just um, dealing with the dishonesty and always kind of making sure that you're on point uh, because someone is always either stealing or trying to rob or do something um, negative, basically to bring down your business. Also uh, marketing. Uh, We had brand names. Um, And then when the brand names weren't doing as well, we would switch those names because we knew in this particular market, a name sold, right? You couldn't just name your product something that didn't sound enticing or inviting. So the pharmaceutical companies do, right? Absolutely. Yes, exactly. I mean, fentanyl didn't get the name fentanyl just by pretend. I mean, they really thought about it. You're right. Absolutely. And so that that was one of the things that we kind of really – really focus on heavily is to make sure that it was a name that people could remember. Um, we would go as far as even pass out pluggers in certain areas, which is, as I look back on it, it was all just crazy. I would never do it again, but nevertheless, that's what, that's where my mind was at. I'm sorry. You were passing out flyers? Flyers. Yeah. Pass yeah. Out flyers that, that say free games and it was like samples and things of that nature. And it's like, wow, this is crazy as I look back, but that, that was the time. It's interesting because in the states now where cannabis is legal, I know that a lot of people still get their cannabis from, uh, you know, illegally. And But these mm-hmm. illegal dealers have had to step up their game, and they're producing flyers, but they're electronic yeah. now online. Wow. wow. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that. Uh, even the packaging, uh, I've, I've noticed that, um, that that's become a little bit more elaborate to kind of compete with the um, – with the dismissals. So, so Aaron, what were some of the risks to your business? You know, there's obvious risks in a general business of, you know, competition and supply. Were yeah. there additional kinds of things that, you know, you had to worry about besides obviously yeah. the police catching you? Yeah. Theft. Theft was a, was of course a, a big issue. Um, people are slick, you know, especially dealing with that lifestyle. Even also corporate America would call it spoilage. Right. Uh, one thing about, heroin is that it can go bad, meaning that it can be no good if it sits for a long time. So you you only had to, you, you had to pretty much produce enough just for what you were going to sell for that day. So you had to monitor your sales and know, okay, I don't want to manufacture X amount right now because this may spill over into two days. So I'm just going to, almost like a first in, first out kind of a method. And so, so that was definitely a big risk. You know, so a, a lot of people when they're selling a product, obviously they're they're solving a problem that people have, and and, and you know people take drugs and and we drink alcohol mm-hmm. to obviously numb yeah. ourselves and and things like that. Did you ever think of the, about the effect it was having on your customer, or it didn't matter because they wanted it and buyer beware? None, none at all. Didn't even. Most cases, uh, again, your mind becomes warped. You only see what's in front of you. So, absolutely not until. Until the overdoses and things like that started, and that was more from like a, a selfish standpoint, like what's going to happen to me. But later on down the line, it was it was more the concept or a moral, moral standpoint. So it says in your bio here that while you were in jail, you had a drastic switch in mindset. Talk about that. Yeah, um, I, I realized I had the opportunity to, to uh, spend time around white collar offenders during my stay, and as I would have conversations with them, we would talk business, and it was. <laughs> 
it was the same the same thing they were doing as what I was doing. Right. You know, and I was just like, wow, you know, I kind of got back to the essence of who I was. I'm like, wow, I really sold myself short. And um, I'm like, you know what? I have the brains. I have the the um, the not even a network, but just like the the wherewithal to at least to get a network. And so I need to do something differently. And so that's what that's how it started. So you realized a lot of the business concepts were the same that they were doing on the outside. Truly, no doubt about it. And so you started this company called U-Turn Transport. Tell us about that. Yeah, U-Turn Transport uh, came out of a, a need that I seen for um, a lot of men and women come home from incarceration. One of the jobs that they want to do is, is trucking, believe it or not, right? Get an opportunity to be on the road, make a decent amount of money. And I was working in dispatch. So I'm like, wow, well, I have the skill set. Um, I know this is the need, again, to fill the market gap. I'm like, okay, let me start this, this trucking company. And so that's where I'm at now, right now, just starting a trucking company for formerly incarcerated. And, and you started this podcast called Escaping the Odds. What are the special challenges that people that were in prison face once they get out? A barrier to um, finances, I mean, fi- financial support of starting a business. My podcast is about business from a formerly incarcerated standpoint. So that's, that's probably the biggest barrier. And even also um, know-how from a professional, like the professionalism, right? They may not have spent time in, you know, boardrooms or corporate environments. So just kind of getting that, getting that down pat is, is one of the challenges I've seen. So what's the best way for someone who has been, you know, in jail to when they come out to make that transition? Because it, it sounds like it'd be really tough because you're going from one type of culture to another. And what works yes. maybe on the inside doesn't work on the outside. That's very true. Uh, I would say for me, uh, building up your social capital, your network is important to um, connect with people, like-minded people that can kind of take you where you're trying to go. And how do you not get in, if you connect with people that you formerly knew before, how do you not get involved in the same stuff and return back to jail? Because I would assume that would be hard as well. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, Just a matter of, of your moral compass has to be in a different direction, right? It can't just be, I'm afraid of the consequences because after a while you can convince yourself that, you know, you can do the time while well, I've done the time before, it won't be anything. But if there's a moral situation there where it's like, okay, I can't do this because it's not right. And so that's where I stand now. That's what keeps me away from the gangs. So so do you feel that people, when, when you come out, people are accepting to give you another chance or, or folks are either shy away from that, Aaron, or they're afraid of it somehow? Um, I, I believe in, initially uh, people are kind of sitting sitting and watching and kind of seeing your behavior, like what are you going to do? And you just have to kind of just keep your head down and keep going. And eventually, uh, if you're true to what you're saying, it's going to come out through your behavior and, and, and people will be willing to work with you once they see you putting in the work and there's no risk for them. I would imagine it's hard to go from starting a business where you really don't make a lot of money because most businesses take time to be successful, where in a legal business, you can make a lot of money very quickly. It's got to be hard for that transition. How do you have the patience this time around? Well, for me, I work for a nine to five job as well, just to kind of help supplement uh, the money that's not coming in from the business. Um, And just when you have a dream, you're going to and a purpose and a passion for something, you're going to push at it. But you definitely would need some kind of a supplemental income legal, of course. And for me, it's working in uh, nine to five. And, and so what are you doing nine to five? What kind of industry are you involved in? I work in um, transportation, work as a dispatcher for a freight broker. Um, I also work for Cook County Safety Justice Challenge, where I'm helping to um, promote reducing the jail population at the Cook County Jail. As a community liaison. Aaron, what is your recommendation for kids that, you know, grew up where you grew up? Because, again, after I read this book, I really felt I would have been in the same place. I would have had a mm-hmm. great business dealing drugs because that's I love business. It has all the same elements. Mm-hmm. How do you get kids not to go in that direction, have an alternate direction to go in? Because it's so easy to go in that direction because you see, I guess, mm-hmm. quote unquote, success stories all around you. Yes. Uh, mentorship is key. Mentorship is key. Just seeing someone that looks like you come from where you come from, succeeding. And that's very important. I always had that vision. I just had to find a person or people or organization 
So that's that, that's that's paramount. Well, Aaron, I appreciate you being on the show. Where can people get in touch with you? Uh, talk about your journey at Escaping the Odds. Where can they listen to the podcast? Um, EscapingTheOdds.com. Um, all of the previous podcasts are, are on that um, site. And February 8th, a new season will be started, uh, which is the third season. And YouTube, Instagram, but pretty much EscapingTheOdds.com. I can reach there. I can't wait to listen. Thanks for your courage. This is AMA 20 WCPT in Chicago. We'll be right back. Running a small business is hard and confusing. Most entrepreneurs start a company to solve a problem and just want to focus on doing only that. Unfortunately, running a business gets in the way and everything that comes along with it, like marketing, sales, customer service, employees, freelancers, and vendors, and money and finance. Barry's new book, Small Business Hacks, 100 Shortcuts to Your Success, solves this problem. It's a simple guide for anyone in a small business to be able to accomplish one of these tasks in five steps or less. No more angst over the issue of searching for the solution on the web. Reva Leonsky and Barry assembled these tips from their combined 50 years in business, both as small business owners and as journalists interviewing thought leaders about their path to prosperity. It's never been easier to start a business, but with so much competition moving at the speed of the internet, it's also never been so easy to fail. This doesn't have to be you. Keep this guide nearby on your desk, tablet, smartphone, or under your pillow. It'll allow you to quickly bust through most problems you'll encounter and leave more time to do what you love at your company. Nice Job is a reputation marketing software that can help you grow your service business. Nice Job's automated tools will help you collect two to three times more reviews and then share those reviews where it matters most. Using social proof and a high converting website, you can be the top rated in your field. If you want to try it out like I have, please go to https colon slash slash nicejob.grsm.io slash Barry. Use the code Barry and get $50 off a Nice Job review plan. Stick around to get your small business unstuck. More of Small Business Radio with Barry Moles. Now on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Well, being an entrepreneur has always been lonely, but it got a heck of a lot lonelier during the COVID-19 pandemic for the entrepreneurs themselves, but also for all their employees working from home. My next guest is Steve Van Cohen, who is a global leadership consultant, executive coach, and author of Connectable, How Leaders Can Move Teams from Isolated to All-In. Steve has spent 12 years working with hundreds of leaders from organizations like Salesforce, The Home Depot, Komatsu, and Bridgestone, helping them improve worker well-being, reduce employee isolation, and boost team belonging. He's also the co-founder of a site called LessLonely.com. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Barry. Well, it's been a heck of a couple of years in terms of loneliness. Where do you start? Well, you know what? The the spotlight has been shining brightly on loneliness, obviously, because we're all, you know, hyper-focused on, on our feelings uh, as of late because of the pandemic. However, pre-pandemic, 63% of Americans said that they feel lonely on a regular basis. So wow. this is not a COVID problem. This has been something that is, you know, been an issue for a long time, but we're just, you know, being ushered into a new level of awareness <clears throat> because of the intensity of the pandemic. So let's talk about pre-COVID, 63%. That's a really high number. Where does that stem from? So there are essentially two big reasons for why people are feeling lonelier than ever before. The first is what we call the catch of convenience. And, you know, to frame what the catch of convenience is, just a quick story, you know, I grew up in the 90s, and if I wanted to listen to a new piece of music, I would have to ride my bike to Towered Records. I would interact with the person behind the CD stand so I could listen to the music. I would wait in line and talk to people. I would interact with the cashier, and then I'd ride my bike to a friend's house to listen together because I was the only one who owned that piece of music. Today, if you want to listen to anything, you just say, Alexa, play. And any song you want plays in real time. And when you multiply unless it's on Amazon of, Premium and you don't have a subscription of that, then she says then she says no, you gotta subscribe. But no, go this go ahead. Because you can download it in the comfort of your own home now. There's no one to interact with. Well, yeah, and now everything that you need is essentially on demand, right? So 
even if I'm going to Starbucks, I don't need to interact with the barista. I just order online and I pick it up without ha- any human interaction. And this catch of convenience is essentially limiting just the amount of overall exposure that we have with other humans. So that's a big reason. And then the second big reason is what, what we call dependency shift. You know, 20 years ago, if something broke in my house, I would call a friend, I would go see a neighbor, I'd contact my dad. Now I go to YouTube and I don't need to depend on others as much as I did years ago. And that has created less time, right? That we're interacting um, even with close friends, family and community. So those are the two big reasons why loneliness has been escalating so much. And these two insights are, are, are interesting to me because in COVID, those two things actually made it a little bit more bearable, right? Because you could have anything delivered to your home and you could find out how to fix any problem by looking online. So it made it easier to be just stuck in your home. It made it easier, but that's the whole point, right? It's the catch of convenience. It is. It's frictionless. It's easy. However, it's not good for our overall well-being and connection levels because we're just not being in the same space with other people. And that's an important part of being a human. You know, it's also I think that we've done a lot more Zoom calls or video conferences called the last two years because I think people were lonely. They want to see another person versus when they're out all the time, talking on the phone was just fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the companies that are doing things right are the companies who are making intentional time to connect. But as you know, right, uh, while we are working from home, people are working more hours and oftentimes people are more busy and the margin and the amount of time that they're taking to connect uh, isn't always as as great as it should be. So. Do you think that some people actually enjoyed being alone? Do you think, how do you think that transition once COVID is over and someday it will be over, how will it be getting back into the work, back into the world? Or do you think we're just going to, Steve, retain the habits that developed over the last three years? Is it going to be a permanent shift? That's a great question. I wish I had a crystal ball so I could, you know, go look into the future and and tell you what's going to happen. I'll tell you from my perspective, just based on the work that I do, right? I'm a consultant. I do a lot of leadership workshops. I do a lot of coaching and, you know, I drive a lot of events with clients. And I can tell you that 95% of the clients I interact with and the people that I talk to regularly are very eager to get back to face to face, right? They're not necessarily eager to go back to work five days a week. That's a different topic of discussion of what's the right kind of cadence for days on site versus days working remotely, but people are very anxious and excited to get back with each other. So I anticipate, yeah, I I anticipate. One or two days a a week, not necessarily five. Not necessarily five, right? Let's not get crazy. That ship has probably sailed five days a week in the office of your service business, probably over. I think so. I mean, for all the listeners out there who run a small business, you know, there's no magic number that says it has to be three days remote um, versus two versus four. But I, you know, the the statistics are clear. People want to work from home and that's not going to go away once COVID's over. So this is colliding with one of the biggest issues that are facing small business 2022, which is really retention of the folks you got. How do you identify an employee that is lonely or burned out? Yeah, I'll start with a quote, and then I'll give you basically five signs. You know, the quote comes from Ansel Adams, who's the famous photographer. And Ansel says, photos are often looked at, seldom looked into. And I preface with that quote because signs of loneliness can be elusive. You have to really pay attention to them. And just kind of doing a quick glance at the team isn't enough. You have to really start to be more of a looker um, to identify some of these signs. But the, the five signs that give pretty big tells that there might be a loneliness issue, the first is uh, overworking. So oftentimes when people are overworking, they're compensating because they're not happy in their personal life. So people are putting in a lot more hours than you think they need to or should be. That's a sign. The second is that people don't talk about anything other than work. So if all of the conversations tend to circle around work and they're not sharing insights about their personal life or things that are going on on the weekends, that's a cue that maybe, hey, this person's having some kind of a disconnect, um, making them feel lonely. Uh, 
The third is what we call a lack of learning and development, meaning that the person is not going above and beyond to try to better themselves, better their skills, take on new challenges. They kind of just are remaining very status quo with the work that they do. The fourth is uh, a break in routine. So this person just isn't doing what I've normally seen them do. And then the last is, as you can imagine, sloppy work. So there's just some cues that this person's not uh, performing at the levels that they're, they're usually performing at. You know, I think, Steve, this is a hard one for a lot of employers because I'm listening to the list as a, as a small business owner. I'm thinking, well, if that employee's overworking or think of nothing at work, part of me kind of likes that. <laughs> yeah, but, but you, what, that but person is right. <laughs> the person's going to burn person's out. A, yeah, yeah. I mean, we all have a tank, and that tank gets to E. And when we're on E, uh, eventually the amount of overworking that we've done, we get so exhausted that we either totally check out or we go somewhere else. So. While maybe in the short term, uh, the overworking will be helpful. In the long term, it's disastrous. So a lot of small business owners got good at creating an inclusive culture when everyone was in the office because they could see each other. It's part socialization. You got the water cooler. And so many of us have struggled, Steve, these last two years trying to replicate that in a remote environment. What advice do you have for them? Yeah, so what's really interesting, you'd think that when someone's feeling lonely, they just need more human contact. But that's not the case. Loneliness isn't the absence of people. It's the absence of connection. And one of the fastest ways to pull somebody who's feeling lonely or isolated or disconnected back to all in is to focus on purpose. And purpose is a loneliness suppressant. It's actually a, a premier loneliness suppressant. Because what happens is when I have a clear purpose, when someone makes me feel important, when I know exactly the beneficiaries of my labor and I can draw a straight line from what I do to who's being impacted, that makes me feel like a part of the group. That makes me feel integral. And those feelings are really important to pulling someone out of this kind of loneliness cycle. So finding ways to make purpose really clear, identify the beneficiaries of the labor and making sure that the team knows how just essential they are to the success of whatever the business is, that's a really important way to make sure people are feeling the way they should be feeling. So how do you make people feel important beyond financial incentives? Well, I mean, you know, there are some statistics that came out uh, a few years ago. The authors of the book, The Carrot Principle, and their research from O.C. Tanner found that the number one reason why people leave their current employer is actually due to a lack of appreciation. The second reason they leave is due to a conflict with a boss or a supervisor. The third reason is a lack of opportunity for growth and development. And then the fourth reason is pay. So while there has to be financial incentives for every worker out there, because most people just aren't working for free, when someone can feel appreciated, when they can see their skills growing and they can see a bright future within the organization, and they have a really close relationship with their leader and their team members, that, you know, in, in the research and the work I've done with my clients, that's kind of the trifecta of goals that you need to strive for and establish. So is loneliness only for introverts or can extroverts also be lonely? Yeah, there is absolutely no difference in the data we've collected. And Barry, just to give you some context, we surveyed over 2,000 global workers in the last two years, and our research found that 72% of these global workers feel lonely on a monthly basis, and 55% feel lonely weekly, which are alarming numbers. Oh, very much. Uh, but in our research, there was no difference between the amount of extroverts versus the amount of introverts. Now, what's different is, you know, how much extra uh, connection time an extrovert might need versus an introvert, but extroverts are lonely, introverts are lonely, people with big families are lonely, people who live alone are lonely. It, it, our research is pretty clear that kind of people at all different levels and all stages of life uh, are feeling these feelings in some capacity. You know, I find out some of the biggest mistakes that small business owners make is they don't take time just to connect. They'll get on the phone or a Zoom with someone and they'll immediately go right to business instead of just saying, so how are you doing? And actually listen for the answer. There's actually some interesting uh, science that shows it only takes 40 seconds 
for two people to have what they call a restorative exchange, right? Where like, I smile at you, you smile at me, you really ask me how I'm doing and I give you a genuine answer. And just that 40 second exchange is enough for me to feel kind of like interwoven back into the thread of humanity. So you're right. It doesn't need to be, let's carve out an hour and like really catch up and talk about everything going on in your life. But being intentional about asking those important questions and really like being curious what the answer is. It's one thing for me to say, hey, Barry, how are you? Uh, And then just quickly brush off whatever you say to get to the business at hand. And there's a, another sensation of when I'm really want to know, and I'm, I'm really tuning in to whatever it is you have to say. So creating that, it has to be intentional, especially with how busy we are today. Yeah. And, and not just you talk about caring, but actually care. You know, we've so much focus, Steve, on physical safety, you know, away from work, being at work, the whole thing with COVID. But how do you create a space that is psychologically safe at work? Well, psychological safety essentially boils down to, you know, two primary components. The first is everybody on the team participates about as much as everybody else. And then everybody on the team feels heard. And that's different from being able to have kind of like a microphone to speak into. It's the sensation that everybody around me is really paying attention to what I have to say. Um, and they're paraphrasing what I'm saying, or they're exploring my thoughts and ideas. And, you know, what I'm contributing is being really picked up and, and run with in some capacity. So those two components absolutely have to be uh, included to create this psychologically safe environment. And those two components are unable to happen unless the team has a level of trust and, and trust is something that is typically built in really small moments. So team members have to be extra mindful of all of the little things they do for one another on a regular basis in order to create the trust that can then kind of design the psychologically safe environment that people can work within. And it goes beyond saying just, well, just trust me. Just trust me. Yeah. I mean, trust is a feeling. It's not right. an action, right? It's not like jump. And you can just, you know, take your feet off the ground. It is something that is not forcible. And it, unfortunately, trust is not something that happens at the snap of a finger. Trust is something that actually takes quite a while to build. There's a really good analogy from Brene Brown. And she said, you can think of trust essentially like that of a marble jar, right? And I have to do thing after thing after thing and put marble after marble after marble into this jar until the jar is full. And that takes a while. But what's really interesting about trust is as long as it takes for those marbles to compound, all I have to do is knock that jar over. And in a matter of seconds, we're back to zero. And it's a quick way for me to have to rebuild and take a lot of time. So yeah, trust it's integral. And unfortunately, it's not something that you can just wave a magic wand at. Well, Steve, thanks for joining the show. The title of the book is called Connectable, How Leaders Can Move Teams from Isolated to All In. Where can people get in touch with you? So if you go to lesslonely.com, that's the easiest way. Or if you find me on LinkedIn under Stephen Van Cohen, happy to uh, follow up with anybody who's interested in the topic. This is AMA 20 WCPT in Chicago. We'll be right back. What a friggin' mess the small business world is these days. You know, I've always been a bit of a germ freak and a prepper, but I didn't actually think I would see an economic apocalypse in my lifetime. But we are now seeing a once in every 100 year event with the shutting down of the economy. But there is a way through. Now is not the time to close your eyes and wait for everything to return to normal. Now is the time actually to burn your boats because it's never going back to what we thought was normal. Now is the time for small business owners to begin to pivot and reinvent their business for a post-corona economy. You know, this is my fourth recession that I've weathered. So whatever you're going through, I've actually been there before. Let me know how I can help you reimagine your business and get through this very difficult time. Contact me at 773-837-8250 or email me at barryatmolts.com. Remember, I'm here for you.
Do you still have great expectations for the Great Recession? Barry can show you how to let go of failure and bounce to get ready for that next great success. Go to www.barrymoltz.com. Barry will show you how to get crazy and achieve your business success. Stick around to get your small business unstuck. More of Small Business Radio with Barry Moltz. Now on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Well, there are about 22 million solo entrepreneurs in this country and growing every day. But how do you make that first expansion when you can't do it all yourself? Elaine Potfeld is an independent journalist who specializes in small business and entrepreneurship. She's the author of Tiny Business, Big Money, a look at how seven-figure business with small teams are reinventing the small business landscape. And she's also the author of The Million Dollar One Person Business, a guide to how solo entrepreneurs are breaking $1 million in revenue in their business with no employees except the owners. She's a senior editor of Fortune Small Business, where she worked for eight years. Ellen was twice nominated for the National Magazine Award for her features and ran the magazine's annual business plan competition. Elaine, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Barry. Great to be here. So how have you been, I guess, getting through this really uh, crazy time? I, I've been keeping busy, doing a lot of writing. I also have four children and uh, wow. <laughs> working on tiny business, big money, and juggling online school uh, kept me plenty busy. Uh, it's really so nice to reconnect. Yeah, I keep imagining what are they going to remember about this time, you know, 50 years from now? I don't know. You know, that's a really good question. I guess the jury is still out, um, but there will probably be a lot of memoirs that come out <laughs> someday in the future. I'm sure there will be. So your first book was really about being a solo entrepreneur. And this next book talks about, OK, I'm no longer a solo entrepreneur. I wanted the business to get bigger. How do you decide to make or when should you decide to make that first expansion move? Usually it's when you're at capacity, you're bringing in a lot of business and you're starting to see some slippage, you're just falling behind on meeting deadlines, or there are things that you know you should be doing, but you just never get around to doing them. Things like documenting your processes so that you could actually teach another person how to do it. That's usually the inflection point where people start to bring on a team of contractors or they graduate to hiring employees. So if I want to bring on my first contractor, what should I do, Elaine, to make sure it's successful? Because a lot of people say they bring in someone because they just need, quote unquote, help. But then that person sits around not doing much or making much of an impact. Usually the best way to find contractors is through word of mouth. And once you have a great name from someone in your network, I would usually recommend starting with a very small, low risk project because you don't want to hire them for you know, a $50,000 project. If they can't deliver, it's better to find out on a $500 project. Yeah, and I always believe that you should give them, here's the specific things I want you to do that I want you to execute, not just, well, help me out where, where you can. So how many contractors do you hire before you decide, well, I'm going to hire that first employee and take on the responsibility of someone full-time, whether or not you have the work? You have to look at the value proposition. Well, first of all, there's a legal aspect to this. There are certain um, situations where you have to hire somebody as an employee. If you're controlling the hours they work, you're controlling where they must do the work, you're giving them strong direction as to how to do the work. You really can't get away with treating them as a contractor. You'll get in trouble with the labor authorities. And I encourage everybody to be familiar with what your state requirements are and the federal requirements. Um, that said, there might be ways, um, there, there are gray areas sometimes, like for instance, maybe you need some marketing help. They don't necessarily have to be in-house. Maybe you can hire a marketing agency or you can hire a marketing person in-house. You really need to look at the value that's created by having somebody on payroll because you have to meet payroll on a certain date and you need to have the cash flow to support it. So that brings a certain element of stress into your life as an entrepreneur, keeping up with that, because we all know sometimes the cash flow isn't so steady in a small business. Um, and if the value is there, if having them there in terms of idea generation, reaching new customers, et cetera, um, 
proves itself, you know, then that's um, a good indicator. You don't have to keep someone forever if it isn't working out. But usually um, what will happen is maybe you try the person as a, you know, maybe they're a solo marketing agency and they're doing such great work for you. You just want to work with them all the time. That would be the point where you bring them in-house. Is there a difference between hiring an agency, hiring a company versus hiring a contractor? Yes, there is, because if you hire a contractor, say they get sick, they can fall behind. There's really not someone else to back them up unless they have a relationship with a a friendly colleague. Um, If you hire an agency, usually they have other people in the organization who can back them up. I experienced this um, with a bookkeeper. It was going well great, and, and then she got really busy with season and other things. And all of a sudden she kind of threw up her hands and said, I just can't deliver. And now my taxes are due. (laughs) So I switched over. I use a company called Bench. There are other competitors to them, but they have a team. So if one person gets too busy, they switch in someone else. So I'm never late. And so that's really the difference. You have to look at, you know, how it all is. Now, I know that in the book, you also, Elaine, look at, you know, the different, you look at census data, look at these industry codes in America. For someone that wants to have a small business, perhaps they have four employees or five employees, are there niches where you can make the most money? Absolutely. Um, what, What I did in the book was calculate the average revenue for every industrial code in America and then the average payroll, which is usually the biggest cost in most small businesses other than maybe real estate, um, and subtracted it and then organized them according to which one had the most money left over. It's a very rough proxy for profit, but it is not exactly profit because people might have high energy costs in manufacturing. They might have um, inventory costs in wholesaling. But it's a good indicator that these areas are worth looking into a little bit more um, and doing some homework on for the up to four employees. uh, Well, I'll tell you which industries I concluded were the best ones for the average smart person. And then I'll tell you some specifics within these categories. E-commerce is a very good niche, obviously, right now during the pandemic, but business to business e-commerce is one that a lot of people overlook. And I'll give you an example. One of the entrepreneurs in the book is a fellow named Aperva Batra, and he runs a company called Flexible Pouches. He's 29 years old. He set this up so that companies that need plastic bags for cereal or for pharmaceuticals inside the cardboard box can order it directly from him online. And he targets only small and mid-sized manufacturers because when he went to trade shows, when he was first starting up, he found that Kellogg's and General Mills, they have their plastic bag suppliers. They don't need one. But it's this, you know, the small mom and pop granola company doesn't have one that can provide it at an economical cost. So he created this beautiful niche for himself and he used online advertising to attract them. And he's a a guy who loves world travel. So it allows him to travel all over the world and they always get their needs met. He has it all automated. Um, So that's an example. Um, There's another category I call the souped up service business. Um, An example is Jenna Kutcher is a photographer and she started creating online courses for people who want to become better photographers where she really makes her money is as an Instagram influencer. She created a really vibrant Instagram page and she gets advertising revenue from that. It's all tied into the photography and it allows her to actually showcase the photography on the Instagram page, but it's an enhanced service business. Um, Manufacturing is another one where you can be a manufacturer from your living room because of all the outsourced manufacturing um, one fellow, Jeffrey Stern, is in his 60s. And um, if, if you have kids or grandchildren, you might know Build-A-Bear Workshop. It's a birthday party place. Yeah, of course, yeah. Tropical. Well, he makes the voice boxes using outsourced manufacturing. Wow. And he's gone back and forth between having a team of contractors and having employees. Currently, it's all contractors. It brings in $4 million in revenue a year. Wow. It's a beautiful business. And he makes the voice boxes for those greeting cards, you know, that uh, talk or have songs, that sort of thing. Um, Then there's 
wholesale. Um, well, a Parvabatra kind of overlaps with that, that where um, he's wholesaling to business to business clients. Um, there, there are many examples that I saw in the census research of these interesting products that are really unsexy, but you can make a lot of money selling them. Um, financial services and technology. There are a lot of people, this isn't really a niche for everybody, but there are a lot of people that have worked in banking and industries like that. Greg Pesci, he worked in those areas in his career and he wanted more time to spend with his family. So he got a team of um, app developers together and he created message pay. And it basically allows somebody to send you a bill in your uh, text messages and you can pay it through a link in the text message. Um, and it's been a great business for him. He's in his fifties and he's got this thriving startup. Um, transportation is another one. Um, and you don't necessarily have to be driving a bus or something like that. There's a woman in the book. Although I, I always wanted to, but you know, that's not, <laughs> at least for a day. It's one of those jobs, Elaine, I just want to do for a day. Well, I don't know with COVID, maybe not, but, yeah. um, but Janine Iannarelli runs a company called Par Avion. And what she does is sells used private jets and she gets these huge commissions and she teams up with salespeople all over the world. They sort of collaborate on these sales. It's been a great business for her. Um, and then another one that's really hot right now is construction. Think about the building boom right now going on. It's obviously very competitive. There are a lot of builders, but if you can find a niche, you can do really well with this. One entrepreneur, his name is Wade Heiner. He's at Destiny Homes, and he teamed up with two of his buddies. He'd been in this industry. He's a salesperson and they make um, houses that are really affordably priced for young families. They're, they're like between two and 300,000 for a family sized house. And they had to work with local municipalities to um, allow more houses on a lot than some of the towns usually have, but they were so popular. They started adding new types of and just you know, a lot of business creativity in terms of what the market wants right now. Um, but what was so fascinating, I have to say, was looking at the data from the um, census studies that we did, in the up to four employees, the top category was casinos. I, I'm not recommending that for obvious wow. reasons because it, that's, that's why, I mean, maybe some people that's their dream, but it's kind of a very specific niche. It's like, I think these little gas station casinos, cause it's really no employees. Um, the second one though was creamery butter. And it turns out that making butter is a heavily automated field. And it, this could be something, maybe the next artisanal trend, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm making butter. Um, it, it's very interesting yeah. stuff. It's interesting, the, the different themes, because I think one of the things you hit on is most of these are basically service businesses or distribution businesses or assembly businesses, right? So they really don't have to carry a lot of inventory or they don't have to make a huge investment in machinery because that stuff requires a lot of capital. It's something that is, is, is nimble and can really scale fairly quickly with not a lot of money. Oh, that's a very astute analysis. Yes, that, that is the truth. I looked for things that an average smart person can do because if it's going to take $50 million to get started, then we're talking about scalable venture-backed companies. And some of these have raised some funding, but I wasn't really focusing on that. This is more traditional small businesses, millionaire next door type businesses that are on a post road that you drive down every day in some weird industrial looking building. And it's, you know, it looks so uninviting. And yet you have somebody who's building real wealth in this business and creating jobs and contributing to the community. Yeah, and I love the way that you, in the book, it talks about how to expand your team. It's first automation, then add contractors, then add employees, then add partnerships. And I think if you think of it that way, it's an easy way to uh, structure the expansion of your team without making an investment before you have to. I, I, I agree with you. I, you know, I think it's a continuum in terms of risk because there's very little risk if you automate something, right? The, maybe the technology doesn't work well, but you're not going to go in and invest $250,000 in 
um, an enterprise resource management system right out of the gate, you'll probably use some apps. And if they don't work, you just stop using them. Um, and then, yeah, a contractor is pretty low risk too, because you, you hire them for that small project. If they never turn it in or whatever, live and learn, right? Nothing really happened. Um, when you start hiring employees, there is more risk because you make a mistake. You could have to pay them unemployment. Your unemployment insurance goes up and so on. So it's 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 a very gradual um, series of steps. And then by the time you reach partnerships, that might be that you step back and you bring in someone to run the day-to-day um, and you work out an equity arrangement with them. And maybe you're on to the next thing and you still keep that business going. And, um, that's what I found they just do naturally because one of the big myths, uh, myths is that entrepreneurs love risk. They don't. I actually think it's the opposite. They hate risk. They try to minimize the risk and maximize the upside for themselves. And this is one one way to do it. Yeah, and the last point I wanted to talk to you about, Elaine, is that you say that in the book you surveyed entrepreneurs and found that they hit a million dollars on average of four years in their first employee after four years. I think a lot of folks listening to that will think of themselves, well, four years hit a million dollars? That's a long time. I think it depends on the industry. But when you think about it, how many people can get to one million in one year? Yeah, I mean, very few. Overnight success, or you've interviewed so many small businesses. Very owners. few overnight successes. Most time it takes five or 10 years. Yeah, and it, it takes a consistency of effort. It takes time to build the business relationships that really lead to someone trusting you and placing a really big order with you. You have to learn your way around the world of the suppliers and vendors and that sort of thing. It, it just takes time. But I look at it as a practice. It's kind of like doing yoga or martial arts or something like that where you you build on the foundation and each year your knowledge deepens and then things click. And and it's when those things click that you can really get to the seven-figure level. Yeah, that's a fair point. Well, Lane, we're out of time for this segment. Where can people get the new book and get in touch with you? The um, book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other major best uh, booksellers. And they can reach me on LinkedIn under my full name or on Facebook or Twitter, same way. And I invite them to reach out. I love hearing from them. It makes me a better journalist. Elaine, thanks for joining us. And I want to thank everyone for joining this week's radio show. I want to thank our sponsor, Nice Job, the amazing tool that can make it easy to build more reviews to grow your small business. To get started, go to www.nicejob.com and use the code word Barry for $50 off. I got to thank our incredible staff who are still hard at work in the studio while I'm working from home. Our booking producer, Sarah Schaffrin, our in-studio producer, Lady B, our marketing manager, Courtney Gilchrist. If you're serious about being successful in this now third year of the COVID economy, give me a call. I've set up a private line, 773-837-8250, or email me at barry at molts.com. Remember, love everyone. Trust a few, pile your own canoe, and go out there and get vaccinated and boosted. Have a profitable and passionate week. You can find Barry Moltz on the web at barrymoltz.com or more episodes of Small Business Radio at smallbizradioshow.com.